And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be around this rotating globe, a very disturbed globe about to enter a transition. You know, I'm, I'm seeing all this fear porn out there about the Great Reset and all the stuff we should be worried about and all the things we should be afraid of and the things that are going to jump out of the closets and go, boo. And I don't see any of that. I see this as an extraordinary time of opportunity. And I'm not talking about the rover on Mars. We are about to enter an extraordinary new age. And a major part of that, I really firmly believe, is the show we did last night. I mean, we have incontrovertible proof that we inhabit a solar system that used to have a lot more of us spread on all kinds of planets over the solar system, particularly on Mars. And that news, in terms of the mainstream, is just kind of waiting to be born. It's like, it's it's almost, you know, they're used to that old commercial, is it soup yet? It's almost soup. We're so close. I, I can... I can feel it and taste it. And I've been at this now, what, many, many decades, many years. Never have we been closer because the evidence is just overwhelming. There's so much that we don't, that we don't know, that we think we know. We, we proceed through life as if, oh, yes, we, we know this, we know that. No, we, we know almost nothing, nothing. And the real adult part of us should stand back in humility and say, what is it we need to learn to create on this planet a civilization worthy of even being called a civilization? We're going to be talking a lot tonight about the unknown, the unknowns on this planet, in contrast to the unknowns on the other planet that we talked about last night. We're going to talk about the oceans, the seas. Remember how Kennedy very metaphorically, very lyrically talked about the new ocean when he looked up and he thought of space and the moon missions and all that. We're going to talk about the old oceans and the fact that even though we think we know what's on them and under them, do we really? I'm going to be mentioning a guy named Charles Fort tonight a bit from time to time. But before we get to my guest and an extraordinary adventure into, uh, we could almost, you know, use as the subtitle, you know, what what mysteries lurk 20,000 leagues under the sea. Let me hit a couple of high spots in terms of the news, okay? If you go to the other side of midnight, for you folks who are new to the show, you go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. You click on the big banner for Sunday night, March 28th which very prominently has an, uh, an old-time bark entwined in the tentacles of one of these mythical sea monsters. <clears throat> or are they mythical? We will find out. Anyway, with Max Hawthorne, that's my guest tonight, you look under there and you'll see something that says, um, well, what you're doing is going to click on the banner. You're on the home page. That will take you to the guest page. And right under that banner on the guest page, you have to scroll down just a little bit to see it. There is something called Fast Links to Items. And it says Richard and Max. If you click on My Items. Uh, last night we did, you know, a lot of um, uh, background on the kind of everybody's talking about the ship stuck in the Suez Canal, the 200,000 ton evergreen um, cargo carrier, which is kind of crosswise in the one of the busiest uh, uh, bottlenecks on Earth right now. Something like 12 to 15% of global commerce goes through the Suez Canal. Well, not tonight, because the ship is still stuck. You know, one of the, uh, or a few of the politicians in Greece were saying very confidently, oh, we'll have her floated back by, by you know, Saturday. Well, it's now Sunday in Egypt, and she's still stuck. And if you want to find out the details, go go to that link. Go to my first item, Tides, Tugboats, and 200,000 Tons. And um, that will give you a kind of a, a latest bit of news. What's really interesting is that we now live in such a 
synoptically connected globe that you can look down from orbit, as many satellites are doing, and you can actually see day by day the traffic jam of these tankers and cargo carriers and I don't know whether there's a cruise ship in there, you know, there, there might be. That would be an interesting story. You know, helicopter out, land a journalist on one of the cruise ships and see how people who are going to go on vacation are kind of spending their time kind of milling around in the Red Sea, waiting for the the Congo line to resume and the traffic jam to be over. And I mean, if you if you go back to story number one, some of the experts, and we went into the details last night, this is very, very, very delicate because if you do this wrong, if you pull her in the wrong way, she could break in half. She could literally capsize. She could become a month and month long catastrophe tying up the Suez Canal. Item number three, um, there's a lot of shippers now that are, are looking at this very seriously and they're thinking of taking the long way home that is around the Horn of Africa. Well, A, that's extraordinarily expensive. I saw one number, I think it was from Lloyd's, that the average ship, the average cargo ship or container carrier or, or oil tanker will burn something like $26,000 of diesel per day in going around the Horn of Africa. And it takes two weeks. So 14 times 26,000. And, of course, the, the, the global supply chain has been disrupted in a major part of the world. And, again, Lloyd's gave me the number yesterday that something like $400 million per hour, that's about $10 billion per day, is being lost because of this traffic jam. I mean, if this was just one of those you know, acts of God, um, although – Apparently, 30-plus ships went through the canal during the sandstorm that's been blamed for this before the Ever Given somehow grounded herself. And 18 went in the other direction, and none of them had problems. It's only this ship. And so now there has been the suggestion that maybe it's <clears throat> pilot error. I know Ron is listening and he's jumping up and down because we talked about this, you know, like a week ago. Anyway, what, however this happens, it's it's not going to be quick. It's riveted the world's attention. It's an extraordinary distraction factor. And in a very kind of weird way, it connects to what Max and I are going to talk about tonight, which is the mysteries of the high seas. Except this isn't the high seas. This is a canal that was dug by Egyptians at the loss of thousands of lives over 10 years back in 1869 so that the world could be closer connected together. And all it took was one big ship and the whole thing is shut down. You know, NASA has this mantra and you know I have many bones to pick with NASA, particularly their current uh, political agenda vis-a-vis -vis what they're really finding on planet Mars. And the rest of the solar system, but they do have one kind of phrase which really applies, which is no single point failure. Apparently, a lot of people over the years have been looking at this worst case scenario and saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Well, it's, it's happened and um, it's not being resolved anytime quickly. Item number four. We're going to lift our sights now and look upstairs. Uh, about two weeks ago, uh, Musk launched another SpaceX rocket with, um, I think, 60 more of the Starlink satellites. That's a whole other conversation. But the second stage did not do the deorbit burn that it was supposed to do to dunk it safely in the Pacific on a controlled reentry. Um, they haven't perfected yet. The idea of bringing back the second stage and landing it like they developed the technology to land the first stage because, of course, it's expensive. You know, it's fuel. It's less weight for the payload. There's trade-offs. You know, you're moving at orbital speeds, which is not what the first stage is moving when they do the retro burn and flip her around and, you know, land her either at the Cape or on a what they call the drone ship somewhere in the South Atlantic. So, 
rescuing the second stage, which will be economically very advantageous for those of us that are looking for cheap access to low Earth orbit and beyond. Remember Heinlein's phrase, once you're in Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. Well, in terms of energy, that's kind of the fact. So this stage did not do the deorbit burn. And so on Friday night, the citizens of Seattle, Leslie, are you listening? We're able to look up and take some amazing video. So I just thought you know, we'd kind of post that uh, tonight as apropos of, you know, Kennedy's new ocean. Well, this is what happens at the shoals of the new ocean when you have a single point failure. For some reason, that second stage of the Falcon 9 did not fire uh, its retro burn. And so it reentered rather spectacularly over a major American city. And there's all kinds of videos in that link. So just, you know, you know, kind of geek out on, on videos of stuff entering from orbit. Item number five. Remember last night we were talking in detail about all the different lines of converging evidence now that there really was an ancient civilization at Jezero and it domed itself in and it probably, given all the signs, was the last protocol before those folks came here. And we put some numbers and times and all that. Well, remember I had this kind of phrase that it only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. And that's really important because there are moments in science where one piece of evidence can demolish decades or even centuries of prior understandings of how the universe works. Well, we've got that. If you, if you go look at number five at that image, click on it, it gets bigger, and I'm going to do suit. And then if you click on it again, it gets really big. So you may just want to click on it one time. Um, and then let me scroll to the right. Because um, if you look carefully, in fact, if you look at the uh, um, uh, thumbnail, which is there on the main page, uh, the guest page, I'm sorry, of, um, of the other side of midnight, you'll see that the rover landed on one of these holy rocks, which is really, really, really weird. The really cool part about this is that if you compare the wheel structure with those um, cleats that start on the edge of the, of the Perseverance wheel and then wrap around underneath and then go up the other side on the rim, you can see very strikingly that there's stunningly regular geometry in their placement, in their width, in their connection to the metal frame of the aluminum wheel, all of this, okay? Then you want to look at both the left-hand image and then the right-hand close-up, and you will see the identical parallel linear same width cubical geometry on this so-called rock right under the wheels. I mean, it's like, it's literally a comparison side by side. If you don't look at this in detail and spend a lot of time, download it. It's a little big when you, when you click on it. I'm, I'm not quite sure it could be resized down. So it's a more manageable size. So you see it in, in both, both frames. But if you look at this thing in detail, there's no question that that intricate geometry in this so-called rock is man-made. And I mean that literally. It's made by us, our great-great-great-great-grandmothers and grandmothers in the model. But there's no way that rocks do that. There's no way that spiny sea urchins do that. There's no way that burrowing annelid worms do that. There's no way that volcanic gas eruptions from tephras spewn out of some Martian volcano can do that because the, the the object is covered with repeating regular geometry in a pattern in a mechanical uh, of, of, of a mechanical nature and anybody who's objective who looks at that will go oh my god because again it only takes one example of something stunningly unequivocally demonstrably artificial on the planet Mars 
to completely destroy all the theories and speculations and musings and pretenses of science <clears throat> that uh, NASA has given us over the last 50 years of Martian exploration. And what's really intriguing to me is they're freely giving us this data, but they're saying nothing. I mean, they're literally saying nothing. As I've said before on a few other weekends, you know, we got a $2.7 billion rover. We've just landed it. NASA desperately needs congressional support. Congress looks to the people to see what they should fund. You know, public opinion does count. I know there are people out there who think it doesn't. No, it really does. Um, and in this case, they have they've become mum. They, they're holding no press conferences. They're putting up no new, you know, press images. They're not making any noises about what they're finding in any regard. They're just putting up raw images and letting us have our will with them and find what we will find on them. And I think this is building up to some kind of a climax, probably around the end of May, the 1st of June. That's the best guesstimate now. And again, while this is all going on on Mars, the Chinese are waiting patiently in orbit. What are they waiting for? Item number six, right below that, there is the latest image from this afternoon from Sol 37. This is from the Watson camera, which is partner to the Sherlock instrument suite on the end of the robotic arm on Perseverance. It's a shot underneath the rover. And if you've been looking at any of the earlier shots, you see a very interesting harbinger of things to come. Because what you're looking at there is the slow, like molasses, day-by-day day unlatching of all the little explosive bolts and cable connectors that are keeping the Ingenuity helicopter tucked up under the Perseverance rover. Well, apparently this afternoon, or maybe this morning, they fired one of those squibs which lets it begin to swing down. You can see one of the legs which when it had the clearance, it's spring-loaded so that it springs out to extend its full length. It's going to have four of them. They're carbon fiber. They've got little knobs on the end so they can land on just about any surface. It's balanced in terms of center of gravity. So given any normal situation one could expect on Mars, it will not tip over. We've been assured of that. But you're watching this kind of like slow motion molasses step by step by step release of this extraordinary experiment called the helicopter which as I said last night I think's real mission is to play the role of a scout of a reconnaissance uh, uh, observer to scout for things that perseverance should go and look at much closer up to and including the libraries in the city in Yezero Crater in the Northern Hemisphere, tucked there next to a feature called Sirtis Major. First feature ever seen on Mars by Cassini back in the 1700s. And there the story will come full circle. So all you have to do is stay tuned. Now, we're going to switch our attention to Mysteries Here on Earth, Monsters and Marine Mysteries by Max Hawthorne, title of his book, and we've got a little video. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the video, which has a soundtrack, which kind of sets up our conversation with Max rather elegantly. And when we're done, I will introduce our guest and we shall commence. So let's listen to what the video says. Are sea monsters real? You be the judge. 1969, Vancouver Island. Two Canadian fishermen observe and film a sea turtle estimated to be 38 feet long. 1978, San Diego. The destroyer USS Stein is attacked and damaged by a monstrous squid. Claws left in the warship's sonar dome indicate a squid five times larger than any known specimen. 
2013. Sanibel Island. A group of friends watch as a tentacle from an octopus estimated at 80 feet explores their fishing boat. 2017. Galapagos Islands. Marine biologists photograph a whale shark as big as a bus. On its flank was a shark bite four feet across. Join Max Hawthorne, author of the best-selling Kronos Rising series, as he examines never-before-seen evidence tied to a host of incredible marine sightings in his new book, Monsters and Marine Mysteries. Monsters and Marine Mysteries is available now on Amazon and in finer bookstores. Grab your copy before something grabs you. I love good promotions. That's really cool. That is really cool. Max Hawthorne is known as the Prince of Paleofiction. Born in Brooklyn and attending school in Philadelphia, where he graduated from the University of the Arts, he is the author of the award-winning Kronos Rising novel series, as well as Memoirs of a Gym Rat, an outrageous expose of the health club industry. In addition to being a best-selling indie novelist, He's an amateur paleontologist, a blog talk radio host, a voting member of the Authors Guild, an IGFA world record holding angler, and an avid sportsman and conservationist. Max's hobbies include archery, fishing, boating, boxing, and the collection of fossils and antiquities. He lives in the greater northeast with his wife, daughter, and an enormous Siberian forest cat who, when he's not Stalking Max's toes, sleeps on his desk as he writes. Max Hawthorne, come on no. down. No, none of us can hear him, Max. <laughs> Rich, we can't hear you on Skype. That's bizarre. Adjust your aux. Yeah. It's all the way down. Maybe I can call him. Bring it up. Okay, it's up at 9 o'clock. Sorry, guys, this is what happens when you're doing real-time radio. Sorry, guys. Yeah, we can't hear you on stop. Hmm. Well, what are we going to do, folks? This is- Does he know? Should I try calling his phone? I would. Yeah, well, you said you would, right, Max? Yeah. Hello? <clears throat> Hello. Ah, welcome yeah. back. You there? I did not do a thing. I well, did. so ah. we just heard from a, a couple phrases after the trailer. So just start over, love. Well, I'm just going to go with Max, okay? Did you hear any of the video that I played? Yes, we heard all the video, and we heard you say about one or two sentences. That's so weird because I didn't touch anything. I okay. still think someone's interfering with this program. I don't know how many times yep. I have to say it until someone believes me, but when I don't touch anything, mechanical or electronic or do anything with the computer and everything goes cattywampus, someone is interfering with the show. And we have okay. to Let's figure go it to out. Max. Say again? Max. Let's go to Max. <laughs> Keith, thank you. I will do my show myself. Thank you. Anyway, um, I think it's because we're touching on subjects that are very controversial. The certain powers do not want us to expose. Max, have you ever experienced um, in, in your career where you're trying to open a can of worms and there are forces that don't want you to open the can? I've had the minions of uh, uh, maybe other publishers, authors, um, harass me on social media, you know, borderline or even full-out defamation, that type of stuff, I interfere with book sales. You know, it's the, the, there seems to be, uh, yeah, it, it's a problem. Hmm. So. Well, unless you spend a lot of money on security, um, there's no real way to combat it. I mean, 
as we know from recent hacks from Russians and others, the solar winds thing, the the you know digital warfare game is now such that almost anybody with a modicum of talent and resources can can you know interfere and it ranges from trolls to serious you know opposition to serious research i think it's a sad statement that if somebody out there has so little talent that they have to actually have people actively persecute the quote competition in order to try and keep them down so they can try and maintain their little spot in the place in the sun or something like that not based on talent but something else i think it's pathetic frankly well i think this is above that level you know this has been going i've been doing the show now over what five years no six years you know i started when art me into doing it and i use that term advisedly uh in 20, 2015 and we've had extraordinary opposition uh all all the way all the way and well without- i will say this there's something weird has going on with the uh with the download the, with the files for Monsters and Marine Mysteries, uh, there are certain images that at the printer that have actually had problems, and there doesn't seem to be an in, a problem with the files. It's being investigated now, but certain images have come out incredibly pixelated, like Ill- illegible. You can't like they're horrible. And in the book, I did a reveal where I showed how uh, some images, like still frames from a popular video out there of a quote sea monster or sea serpent uh, have been altered by somebody where they've actually done fogging on key frames of the video and I've proved it in the book I've taken the frames and I've zoomed in and and you can see the actual squares of fogging where they covered up key components of the video and uh, they don't want it seen and it's in the book so I'm sure people don't want that if they're trying to hide that etc I mean so who do you think will be behind this you mentioned competition I think this is Light years above competition. I think this is more at the level of the, you know the deep state, um, government agencies. That I mean, there there seems to be so much suppression to keep us from knowing the real environment in which we live. Well, I would imagine. I mean, the incident in question I'm talking about. I mean, I know we got to go on a break in a minute, so I don't really think we're gonna have time to delve into it too much. But uh, it involved the possibility of the Coast Guard or the uh, Harbor Master, et cetera, knowing that they had a very, very large marine predator in the area. And because it was reported by somebody that I spoke to and they were told that they knew it was there already. And something like this could be responsible for human disappearances, et cetera. And I think in a situation like that where people are, Let's put it this way. If you knew all of a sudden, like if, if somebody you knew disappeared surfing and then found out that there was a huge marine predator in the area and governmental individuals knew about this and did nothing about it, didn't alert anyone, et cetera, I would imagine that there would be some sort of legal repercussions. Well, that's, Italy, yeah, et cetera. You know, that, that's certainly, and people don't want that. Uh, for basically, kind of like, sounds like a plot out of Jaws, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could discuss it at length after the break if you want to. The, break time. The talking. Okay, well, we are we are literally now at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Max Hawthorne, and we are going to be talking about Monsters of the Deep. And that has many connotations. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and God willing, the creek don't rise, as Tennessee Ernie Ford used to say, we shall return. Richard C. Hoagland here. 
I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the Navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. back to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, March 28th, 2021. My guest this morning is Max Hawthorne, and we're talking, we're going to be talking about uh, Monsters of the Deep. But uh, before we get to some of the specifics, I, I take it, Max, that you have uh, a bit more background on this interference, because it's gotten to the point where it, it, it really either has to stop or legal authorities have to be called and of course in that case one has to have a paper trail or in this case an electronics trail because there does seem to be a rising tide of disinformation of outright suppression i mean the fact that they would reach out and literally you know mess with the images so that you couldn't publish you know quality material that's 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 pretty uh, outrageous well, uh, um, I don't know what's going on, but I know the four matters are investigating on their end. I've seen the uh, the files, the EPUBs and MOBIs, et cetera, and they look fine to me, but somehow when they're getting downloaded, something's going on. You know, but at the end of the day, uh, it's not going to you know stop anything. They can slow things if you know all they want, but you know, Monsters and Marine Mysteries. It is available now for pre-sale purchase in Kindle format on Amazon exclusively. And the soft cover, full-size soft cover, will be available on April 6th for purchase as well. Um, I mean, I guess I'll, if you want me to talk about this uh, Sanibel Island incident and stuff, I might as well. Yeah, why don't, why don't we start? Well, let's say, let, let me do this. Sure. The last conversation we had was, you know, basically one of my favorite topics, dinosaurs. And, how did you wind up segueing? I mean, you you really have made your name in in writing fiction, but obviously, as any good author, if you really want to communicate the gestalt, and so the the environment is seamless and people fall into that suspension of disbelief, you got to do a hell of a lot of homework. Okay. Yes. So, yes. how did you segue? I mean, what, 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 what kind of trip your alarm bells about there may be things out there under the deep ocean that we have no idea 
are cohabiting the earth with us tonight. Well, I've been an avid reader of fiction, obviously, since I was since I could walk. Um, and I've been into paleontology, and I've been an angler for many, many decades, and I've been on the water hundreds and hundreds of times. I own my own boat. I've set world records for fishing and yada, yada, yada. But uh, I've also seen a couple of cryptids myself, um, and I've experienced – Wait, wait, wait. wait. Uh, you just used a term. What's a cryptid? A cryptid, a creature which science does not acknowledge ah. exists. But are seen and by people like Sasquatch, for example. Sasquatch is not proven or accepted by the scientific community at large, let's say, but it has been seen by thousands of people. And there's insurmountable, as you said before, evidence uh, of it existing. So, uh, in the course of writing the Cronus Rising series, I learned a heck of a lot about paleontology and about prehistoric marine reptiles and everything else. I also started delving into research about modern sightings of extant cryptids and creatures that sound like things that are supposed to have been dead for 50, 100 million years. And the more research I did, the more things I started to uncover. I started developing theories of my own about certain well-known uh, sightings, like, for example, the Port Stevens shark incident from 1918, where people claimed they saw a 100-foot white shark, which an albino, let's say, that people you know, used to justify the existence of megalodon. Well, look, a 100-foot, that's one-fifth of the height of the Washington Monument. Yeah, well, but, um, I mean, so that, I mean, that, I don't want to be a oil sport or anything like that, but the evidence, in my opinion, and my based on my research, overwhelmingly in, indicates that the creature that the fishermen encountered, these lobster men, uh, was not a predatory shark. It was an albino whale shark, which, although incredibly rare, does exist. And whale sharks used to get a lot bigger a hundred plus years ago than they do now. I mean, there are records from fishing villages that document that they exceeded six feet in length. And I personally knew a, uh, a shark captain I fished with for many years who claimed that he had a 90-foot whale shark behind his boat at one point, like literally right out the transom there because he was putting out a chump slick, and I guess it was attracted to the, uh, you know, the ground of herring, et cetera, which makes sense because whale sharks regularly purloin fish out of, out of you know, trawler's nets. They'll come up and suction them right through the mesh and stuff. So uh, even a 60-foot white whale shark to frighten lobstermen would seem like mm. a giant monster. Mm. That's the size of a sperm whale. See, So you see this huge thing swimming through the water, and then it gets entangled in your your lobster you know, traps, you know, the, the ropes that lead up to the buoys and stuff, and it drags them off, et cetera, and people get frightened and that's how the story comes along. See? So, I mean, when I decided I was going to actually do a, a full research project on this, I had already investigated a whole slew of sightings on my own. And then I sort of diving into it a lot further. And I got to talk to some incredible people that I interviewed that are discussed in the book and all the evidence and people that nobody knows they're even alive still. And that have been encountered immense, terrifying things been attacked by giant marine predators some of them and it's all in there and it's, it was incredible and a privilege to talk to these guys and you know get first-hand accounting so the that they how see. how does one go about finding the survivor of an attack by a sea monster i mean you can't really well, put an ad on facebook modern technology has its advantages and i happen to have a, a few devious minions at my beck and call <laughs> that are able to uh you know track down i mean i spoke to relatives who gave me information after a while or got back to me you know they want to make sure you're not some psycho some lunatic or stalker or whatever you wanted some weirdo i mean i'm weird but not that kind of weird if you know what i'm saying mm. and uh i was you know, they, they called me and uh, we spoke and then we did like video interviews that I recorded, et cetera. And it, it was, it was amazing, honestly. So, uh, you know, the, the, but uh, one of those people, it's once again, there was, seems to have been a disinformation campaign. And I detailed this in Monsters and Marine Mysteries. I spoke to a gentleman named Rodney Ross, 
a Canadian who was the last survivor of a series of attacks that took place in 1976, right after the uh, 4th of July, the bicentennial. And over a five-day period, every other day, these fishing boats were attacked by this same 60-foot predator. And it, it's nothing normal. It's either a, an immensely mutated life form from this planet or something from somewhere else. And they all had the same – it was in their newspaper and all this stuff. I mean, it's not anything they concocted. And this creature tried to attack their boats and pursued them, and they had to run for their lives and all that. And it was big. No, I mean, wait, 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 wait. You just mentioned something very interesting. Either an unknown creature or something from somewhere else. What do you well, mean by that? I mean, I think I know where you're going, and that opens the up a real can of worms. That let me let me go to the uh, pull up the actual file because when you write as much stuff as I do, it's hard to remember everything, and I don't want to give out anything wrong. So this took place. In 1976, July, Cape Sable Island. It's right near where there was a UFO crash there a few years prior to this. And when this UFO, in fact, I'll go to that point in the manuscript. Let me see if I can find it. Sorry for the delay. Here, so Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, 10-mile drive from Cape Sable. And this was in October 4th, 67. They had an incident where a very large, brightly lit rectangular object witnessed by hundreds of people crashed into the water there. People thought at first it was an airplane. They had uh, the, found some sort of yellowish foam, thick foam floating on the surface, et cetera. And I wonder if either something escaped from this you know, reported UFO or if the foam that came out of it might have affected native marine life mm. and turn something small into, into something very, very big. Oh, this sounds like something years. out of a movie in the 1950s. <laughs> mm -hmm. But nine years later, these fishermen are all attacked by what looks like a mutated monkfish of the size of a whale. Holy and cow. So it's, uh, it's all in the book and everything, but uh, it's like, so, but the weird part is, is that Rodney explained to me that this creature, if you look at it... In now, this was one of the witnesses. I'm sorry. Rodney's one of the witnesses. Rodney Ross. Yeah, he was a, a young man, uh, like 19 or 20 at the time when they were attacked by this creature. And his father and him were on the boat, uh, and it it tried to grab, inhale, like, the back end of the boat eventually. It was eating fish, like that, I guess, swimming around, swallowing schools of fish that they were catching because they were anchored up. And then... This fish all disappeared and it surfaced and it tried to grab the them and the tail end of their boat. Um, and it was quite large. I mean, he said literally the mouth was 15 feet wide. Oh, my God. Filled with sharp teeth. And <laughs> so the strange thing is, is, though, is that if you look at it on in cryptozoological circles, it's referred to as the, quote, Cape Sable Serpent. And Rodney told me, he goes, I don't know where they came up with that name. He goes, because none of us called it that. We called it the Southside Sea Monster. And that's, that's what they named it. But the weird part is, is that after the, all these incidents, and before it appeared in the paper, the um, person that sounds like a, quote, men in black type character, showed up at the Ross's house, and he wanted to interview them supposedly for a newspaper or something about what they saw, what they encountered. And he had an artist with him, and they described their encounter in intense detail. And he said that the artist drew exactly what they saw. I mean, exactly. It was unbelievable, like they were looking at it. And then the guy left. He never gave them a card or contact info or anything like that. said, oh, we'll be in touch. And then all of a sudden it shows up in the newspaper, and in the newspaper, there's this weird green snake, sea snake-looking type of drawing. And it looked nothing like what they described, nothing like what their art, the artist from this person who just showed up, and they had no idea who this guy was or is or whatever, uh, what, what he drew. And, uh, and the name was even changed to the Cape Sable Serpent. And a lot of the details of the story were changed too. I got all from Rodney, everything. 
dates, times, circumstances, time of day, time of the attacks, the tide, the, the visibility, you name it, all the stuff, including, you know, because he knew all these, these other people, that these voters that were attacked. And you know, it was a terrifying experience. If you think about it, you're out there fishing and you think everything's normal. And then this creature, it had like a, like a, like a, I don't want to call it a periscope, but it had like a long sort of tapering, almost like pyramid-like top to its skull that came up, and it had these bulging red, like six-inch eyes at the top of this like yard-wide mass of flesh, which was the thin point of its, like a stalk coming up from its head. And it was swimming along, and this was sticking up out of the water. So when they first saw it, they thought it was an ocean sunfish a very large ocean sunfish, and this was like the fin or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was moving along behind them, moving from side to side, back and forth. And it, to me, it was obviously inhaling schools of fish. And then after a while, he said the fishing went dead. And then it came directly up behind them. And then he said it turned, we'll call this the head, the eyes, and it looked right at him. And then it bum-rushed the boat. Hmm. It just started coming towards them, towards them, towards them, and they were like, "What the heck?" And as it got closer and closer, it's right it out, of the jaws, out of Jaws, right out of that damn movie with Dreyfus, huh? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it started off about three feet thick, and as it got up, 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 you saw that the head had this huge pyramid-shaped like stalk growing up out of it. Do you have? Head obviously, was fifteen feet across, obviously and the we, mouth to match. We don't have video or 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 photos, right? No, there is a sketch. Uh, I was going to ask you: Did someone do a sketch based on his description? I tried to replicate what this strange artist, government person, whoever it was that showed up did, and I got pretty close actually because we were doing a video thing, and I would draw and I'd show him and draw and show him, et cetera. So there is a pretty good interpretation of it in Monsters and Marine Mysteries, just like a police uh, sketch artist. I'm sorry? Just like a police sketch artist. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I used to be an animator originally when I went to, you know, what I went to college for. So I was able to, you know, do the same type of thing, I guess you'd say. But, uh, and it's a very unpleasant looking thing. I mean, he described how, the rows of teeth it had. And I mean, he's looking right down its throat because it came up behind the boat. And he said it was literally big enough to swallow the tail end of their boat, including the people standing there. It was like you were looking up. The jaws were over, over you. It was that big, the mouth. And his dad gunned it, and the boat lurched forward, and he said it just missed them, and there was a thump. It, like, nicked their, their transom or something, and then it dove down, and they rushed forward. They were on, like, a, I think a 600-foot anchor line or something. It's in the book, the details. And they didn't pull up anchor. They just rushed forward to avoid this thing's charge. And then they pulled up there. They stayed there for a little bit. It didn't seem to come back. And then they let themselves drift back into the fishing spot that they were at there. And then they were standing there. And he said it seemed like an hour. Neither of them spoke. And then the the, the kid, he was very young then. He uh, he was 24, actually, to be exact. I'm looking at it right now. And he was like, Dad, uh, have you ever seen anything like that before? And he's like, nope. And then, and this is the creepy part. Before they saw it the first time, they heard it. It was this weird sound that he described. It sounded like wind sort of whistling through the rigging on like a schooner or something. You know, kind of like this sound. And they heard it, and then they saw it. And I guess that's how the wind was, or the current combination was affecting the part of it that was protruding up out of the water. So they they were sitting there, and then there was no fish, and then they started hearing it again. And they knew it was coming back to take another shot at them, and they, they decided that discretion was the better part of valor at that point, and they pulled up anchor and they got out of Dodge. And then they encountered the fisherman who was attacked the first time by this thing, whom they had mocked, like the guy had become the laughing stock of the town at first, until other people started getting attacked by the same creature. And then they pulled up next to him, and they're like, you wouldn't believe what we saw. He goes, I know exactly what you saw. He goes, let's get the heck out of here. And he's like, come on, I'll follow you in. And, and both boats like got out of Dodge. But it's a frightening story because this creature literally it chased one guy for miles with his boat. He wasn't able to outdistance it speed wise. It and almost eventually... sounds like this creature is not a creature, but something intelligent that's very unhappy with where it is that mm-hmm. came here in an unexpected emergency way and mm-hmm. does not like it and is attacking, you know, remnants of civilization on the surface because it feels it's. The, I mean, this is all 
conditioned on the fact that in the same area in 67, I've actually seen the, the Coast Guard reports on that. Something mm-hmm. weird hit the water and was mm-hmm. seen. So it's not an untoward speculation to say that either the <clears throat> pilots, you know, were stranded or something they were carrying escaped. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that to Rodney, the, the possibility, because it's a 10-minute drive to where this UFO crashed into the water. So, I mean, 10 miles is nothing. Nothing, for nothing, of course. Yeah, this thing could have been, uh, it's going to sound silly, but somebody's in somebody's aquarium. On Do you remember that brilliant 1950s movie uh, by Howard Hawks called The Thing? Mm-hmm. One of my I just fav- watched it a few months ago. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not talking about the new ones, you know, which I hated. No, the thing from another world. The thing from John uh, John Campbell wrote the wrote the uh, story. The famous editor of uh, uh, Astounding in the Analog Magazine. It's classic, and you remember that it it shipped and it was frozen in the ice, and when they thawed it out, it came alive and was yes. very unhappy. Well, this, I mean, it, it, it sounds like science fiction. But it almost sounds to me like you're looking at a replication of that kind of scenario. Well, it did exhibit interesting behavior based on the three different attacks, because the first time it behaved similarly to um, the in the the first attack, it did what it did with the Rosses, and it chased the guy's boat and for miles. I mean, miles. He had to go into the shallows before it veered off and lost interest, okay? Um, It wasn't just trying to drive him away because if it was trying to drive him away, you would think like a mile would do the job. Yeah, yeah. It it wanted something. Either it wanted to eat the people on board or like you said, it was an angry thing, et cetera. But I remember Rodney telling me he felt that it looked like it was like – like an abomination, like it, it was like mutated or so, something like that. I forget how he described it, but uh, yeah. But any it, it, alien creature, sea creature, because mm-hmm. we assume oceans are prevalent. I mean, look at Europa and Ganymede, and mm-hmm. you know all these worlds now are hiding hidden oceans. Earth with an exposed ocean is maybe more of a rarity in the galaxy. The point is that waterborne creatures should not be rare at all if you look at enough planetary systems. So. If someone's moving back and forth and, you know, let's say it was, you know, carrying something for a zoo from somewhere else and it happened to crash here mm-hmm. and it got – I mean, it, it's a totally plausible scenario given – Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I told him maybe the ship was filled with water instead of oxygen, instead of air. Maybe it was a marine environment. Do you remember Star Trek Four? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, Scotty but, uh, went and found, you know, transparent aluminum to build a uh-huh. cage for the whales to bring them back. And anyway, the point is that if you're dealing with something which no one's ever seen before and exhibited bizarre behavior and intentional, it's like it, it viewed those boats as enemies, not just just something that most most creatures on Earth, you know, avoid human contact. Uh-huh. This was looking for contact. Yes. In a vicious and the third way. attack, this is the interesting part, is it changed tactics. Oh. It adopted or adapted its, its, its behavior, okay, for the boats. Because it, when it attacked the Rosses, like I said, its stalk, its eyes, whatever you want to call it, were above the surface. It was eating fish, et cetera, or very hungry. Maybe it wasn't catching fish. I assume it was swallowing gobs of schools, but maybe I'm wrong. But And then it came toward them, and it emerged up, 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 up. When it attacked the last person on the third encounter there, which was, let me see if I can find it, July 9th of 76, a fisherman named Edgar Nickerson, um, it just came up and attacked. There was no warning or anything like that. It just surfaced and came after them. Like It, it was like, you know, I'm not going to give a warning. I'm going to get you type of thing. And that shows you that it able to change tactics so that it would hopefully have a successful interaction hmm. for one of a better term. But uh so it, it was just in- incredible. But it so struck me as so strange that you know details of the story had gotten changed. I mean those that does happen over time. But when he told me that some 
strange person showed up with an artist at their house and took their statement. Oh, tell me about this because apparently the government did get involved. Well, they don't know who it was. He said, I have no idea who the guy okay, was. Give, the guy showed give, up there. Give, give us the full story so we can kind of judge the surrounding okay. things for ourselves. So he said that this a, is your friend a man or? showed up with um, at their house, and he had an How artist. long after the incident? Let me see if I can find it exactly in here. Because, see, this gets into the whole area of extraterrestrials, which are a no-no at all levels of government. You heard that the latest uh, thing that Rubio wanted to do, which is get a Senate intelligence report, is now being stymied by the deep state intelligence crowd. <clears throat> so the fact that they would interfere with your book, which contains this story, and they're interfering with this show, which contains you, mm-hmm. I see a pattern. That's what I do for a living. I look at patterns. Okay, so the, this unidentified forensic artist showed up unannounced at their home. Uh, How long after the incident? I think it was very soon after the incident. Like days. Were, word was getting around within a week. Okay. Say, okay. Or something, because word was getting around. There had been three different attacks. It was in a local paper, which the local paper is illustrated in there. And he said they gave him a full description. When he's done, he created exactly what they seen. When the story broke, however, what appeared in the papers was completely different. It was this cutesy, Nessie-like drawing that did not represent the Southside Sea Monster as any more than a moray eel. So it was more disinformation for the general public. It sounds like that's exactly like what happened. They, Nothing they, to see they, here, folks. Move along, okay. move along. Nothing right. to see. And in the newspaper there, um, Rodney's father had done a drawing of what he'd seen, what they'd seen, which was a crude drawing, but you could see, if you look at the popular image of the, quote, Cape Sable Serpent, or whatever it's called, um, incorrectly, that looks nothing like the drawing that appeared in the newspaper that the father did. And so, I mean, how does that happen? How does somebody show up and say, oh, yeah, let me help you out here. Tell me what happened. Let me draw the stuff, yada, yada, yada. And all that, okay, yeah, 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 we'll be in touch. Uh, the story will come out. And then the story comes out, and it's what? Total disinformation. Yeah, yeah, disinformation. Exactly. Well, you know there's a whole class of UFOs called USOs with an S, right? Mm-hmm. Unidentified submerged objects. And there are stories of you know people on in, in Navy flotillas, on, on cruise ships, uh, on shore, seeing UFOs entering and leaving the water not crashing, but deliberately. Mm-hmm. And so one can imagine if we're part of a galactic community and everybody wants us not to know that, that mm-hmm. there are denizens of the deep that are comfortable in marine surroundings that are uncomfortable because they can't maybe live on air at all, in which case this becomes a lot more problematic because if the government or the deep state agencies know this, and the objective is at all costs, do not let the sheep know <clears throat> that they are, you know, not alone. Then it, this this kind of makes uh, awful sense. Definitely. Hmm. Well, 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 well. I did not think this tonight was going to go in this direction. Um, let me let me pause here because we're we're literally at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Max Hawthorne. And we're talking about sea things, monsters, aliens, alien creatures of other seas that have been released because they didn't intend to stay. They only wanted to visit. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.